Welcome to the Healing for Male Survivors podcast. This is a podcast for male survivors of sexual abuse and assault, whether as a child or as an adult. Know that you are not alone and the abuse was not your fault. My name is Mike Chapman. I'm a certified recovery life coach and also a survivor. Let's find hope and healing together. Thank you for joining me today for this very special part one of a three-part episode. Back on October 25, 2023, Men Healing continued the tradition set in 2022 of recognizing that day, October 25th, as Male Survivor Awareness Day to coincide with the month of October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. While they planned their own event, Drew Boa of Husband Material and I thought it would be good to again set up another live event this year after doing a similar event for 2022. This included participation of the Husband Material membership, specifically its subgroup fellowship for abuse survivors. Fellowship members submitted poetry and other items to be shared, some live, some previously recorded, and some read by others. The event was co-hosted by myself and Dr. Doug Carpenter, author of Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. This year we came up with a theme, Disclosure why it often takes so long to tell anyone about the abuse. The goal for this event and the day in total was to help non-survivors how to understand and work with survivors to help support them on their healing journeys and to better understand the concept of disclosure since this is often discussed in the media in the more public abuse cases. And that was the goal for uh, our event specifically, to understand the concept of disclosure. I'm very proud to have organized this event and with the end result, make sure you take a look at the show notes with lots of helpful links that were mentioned during the episode. And here we go with part one of HM's Male Survivor Awareness Day 2023. Well, welcome to the 2023 Male Survivor Awareness Day with Husband Material and the Husband Material community. I'm Mike Chapman, Husband Material Coach, and with me is Dr. Douglas Carpenter, who Hello, is everyone. also a Husband Material Coach and a psychologist. And uh, what are all your, you've got tons of letters after your name in several roles. So you're a psychologist, you're also a pastoral something uh well i don't have the piece at right but right. you do offer pastoral counseling as well yes 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 and I, i'm a licensed minister with our church and uh-huh. i have a doctor in clinical psychology and a master's in addiction okay and author of a few books yep which one is secret shame which is all about male sexual abuse yep got that thing right here there you go. There, there it is. There it is. Yep. 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 It's a great tool and a wonderful resource. So there's your plug. Um, Thank you. And yes, we're having this. This is our second annual Male Survivor Awareness Day. Uh, what this is from is uh, last year, uh, Men Healing and several other groups 
got together and decided, hey, since October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, let's set a day for male survivor awareness. And they set that for October 25th last year. And now Men Healing is carrying that torch this year. I believe they're doing some type of events honoring that for today. Uh, though I don't know if they're doing that. We decided to do this again this year. Last year, we kept it general and uh, talked about survivor stories. This year, we are doing the theme of disclosure. That seems to be a hot topic. Well, why did you wait so long to tell someone? That seems to be a common question among people to survivors. Why did you wait so long? So, and that is a question we actually posed in our subgroup fellowship of survivors. What was the time frame between the last time you were abused and you first disclosed to another person and why? And we have several responses. I'll be going through those today. In addition, we also posed to the husband material community at large, if you had questions for survivors, what would that be? And I have a few of those questions as well. If you have a response as a survivor, put that in chat. Doug, could you explain with your book, I know you have a whole section on disclosure. So tell me, why does it take so long for men to disclose their abuse? Well, um, you're right. I do have chapters 9 through 11 of my book are all about the disclosure process. Chapter 9 is the biggest chapter in the book because throughout the research and throughout my own research and 20 plus years of working with victims, I was able to list over, well, actually about 40 reasons why I have uncovered that, that men don't tell. We know that so many men just carry this message or this this abuse all the way to death and never, never disclose. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard in a therapy session a man disclose their abuse and then tell me that they've never, ever told anybody I'm the first person they've ever disclosed to. One of the research um, articles that I cite in my book, and I just wanted to read this short quote from them, <clears throat> it's from a research study in 2017 and it says despite the increased attention to sexual abuse males are significantly less likely to, to disclose sexual abuse victimization they are less likely to seek help they are less likely to be suspected of being a victim they are less likely to be believed upon disclosure and they're more likely to to be blamed or blame themselves, and they are more likely to be perceived negatively when they do disclose their abuse. So that was one researcher's summary of, of what they found. And th those are some pretty tough reasons why men don't tell because, and as I mentioned, there are a ton of reasons why men don't tell, but we no longer have to live that way. We no, have to no longer live with our silence. There's also another research study that shows the longer that you hold on to your disclosure, the higher your chance of mental distress, depression, anxiety, somatization, which is kind of just a fancy word for converting emotional pain into bodily symptoms like headaches, stomach aches, gastrointestinal upset, body aches. The longer we hold on to our disclosures, the higher the, the suicidality, the suicidal ideation that we have. One important study 
that I quote in the book was from a study in 2014, where it found that if your abuse was church related, like it was by a priest or a pastor or a youth pastor, something like that, the average years that someone holds on to that is 25 years that most men don't disclose until they're in their 30s, 40s. Um, and then there were a slew of research articles that talked about that men wait over 20 years to tell. Part of that, I think that the sexual abuse is so damaging to a man's brain is that it takes such a long time for the man to begin to heal and to, to come to grips with what happened with them. And finally, at some point later in their life, they start to recognize it, recognize it as abuse and that it that it wasn't their fault. You know, they stop imposing all this childlike thinking onto their abuse and they start seeing it like what the truth is for it. You know, I think another thing that happens in the 30s and the 40s is when you you have your own children and your children get to the age that you were when you were abused you realize that they are still small children and cannot could could not have consented to that kind of of harm or or activity or even pleasure that they couldn't even consent to that you know you might look at your 9 year old son and think oh my gosh he's the age i was when i was abused this there's no way this was my fault i could not have been responsible for this right. and your use really starts to come to life to you right. instead of you believing all these myths that you have come to believe about it. There was another research study in 2005 that cited three big reasons why men don't disclose. Number one is men often fear that they will be viewed as a homosexual, that somehow this act was something of, of a homosexual act. I don't wanna be viewed that way. I don't wanna be perceived that way. They believe that something that the perpetrator did to them, feminized them, damaged their masculinity. Um, another one is that men feel isolated due to the belief that boys rarely get victimized. And we are learning more and more and more that that's actually not the truth at all. In fact, there's a wonderful website, which I reference a lot called oneinsix.org. And that has tons and tons of research articles that show that Currently, the current statistics are that one in every six men have experienced some kind of unwanted sexual touch by the time of age 18. And for girls, it's one in three. So those are really staggering numbers. And then the third misconception about um, if I were to disclose is that men fear that if I was abused, that I'm going to then become an abuser. And you hear that a lot. But I want to tell you that the research shows that there's only a very small percentage of men who go on to abuse. And Freud psychoanalytic literature calls that identifying with the aggressor, that you gain back the power and control that you lost by actually then becoming the abuser. Again, let me stress that that only happens in a very small percentage of men, even though that's a, that's a huge misconception and, and misbelief and a myth that men come to believe when sometimes when they've been sexually abused. Right. Uh, so, I definitely agree with that, what you were saying about, yeah, part of the fear of disclosure is if I tell someone they're going to think I'm not safe with children. 
And right. that's a common belief. And then and, and that does happen. I mean, I do see men who disclose and then people are like, oh, my gosh, he's probably a pedophile. I can't let him around the grandkids. I can't. let." And that is so not true. The, those right. two things are so unrelated. Right. Um, you know, like I said, only a small percentage of people who've been abused go on to abuse someone else. Pedophilia right. has nothing to do with um, really sexual abuse, except in very rare rare cases right um, now I, you mentioned the uh when you have a child that reaches the age that you were around the same age that you were abused i see so many stories including in my own where that was true where your yeah. child your firstborn gets to that age where you were first abused and it's something about the smells the uh, the everything it's in your face having this child at that age and it just unlocks stuff and uh, especially even if it was repressed if the memories were repressed yeah i was just getting ready to say it's it's oftentimes too when your child reaches the age that you were when you were abused you can start being flooded with memories and intrusive thoughts that right. and there may be memories that were rep repressed or you had not thought of or were not even aware of that somehow come to your awareness either through a dream through intrusive thoughts through um you know watching a television show where there's some kind of abuse and then all of a sudden you start dissociating you know i mean there are a lot of different indicators that can happen that start bringing back your memories of your own abuse right now you mentioned uh the church abuse that it almost seemed like with your stats that it would when it was a church related abuse that it took even longer than a non-church related abuse too. Well, yeah, because I think in a church in church abuse, you have as a child or an adolescent, you have the belief that this person represents God, right? And so right. they would never do anything to purposefully harm you. So I must be confused. Mm -hmm. I must be confused about what happened, or I could never disgrace myself or my family, or the church, or this priest, or this pastor, you want to hold on to that belief and deny that that happened to you because this person represents deity to you, and you can't imagine being harmed by somebody who represents deity. Right. So it's harder to come to grips with the fact that that actually happened. In fact, somebody just put in the chat that it took me almost 50 years. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't doubt that. You know, I know in my own abuse story that... It took me, and even being a psychologist, it took me almost 30 years before I could say that I was abused because I had uh, falsely convinced myself because my perpetrator, was, my abuser was my own same age. He was just a boy that had more knowledge and mm -hmm. he manipulated sexual behaviors with me to be my friend. Actually, for me to be his friend, because I... I struggled in, in elementary and junior high school and I didn't have male friends and he became my friend. And so I felt like the only way to keep this male friend was to continue to let him do these things with me. Right. You know, and so I convinced myself for 30 years that this was experimentation, that it was two boys experimenting and I wouldn't call it abuse until, but I would read books about childhood sexual abuse. I would work with other victims and I would sit and think, oh, I, I have these symptoms. Why do I have these symptoms? Like, it's like I was sexually abused, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. But I have all these symptoms like I was. Right. And then finally, through the work with a, a, a therapist, I went to my own therapy. 
I came to terms with, hey, what happened here was sexual abuse. This kid had way more knowledge. He exposed me to tons of pornography. He manipulated that pornography to do things to me. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt trapped because he knew that I wanted a male friend because I didn't have one. And you know, I, it took me a long time to be able to say that. And I think men also get confused about the term calling it abuse when physiologically there is a response to the, that abuse. They might get an erection or ejaculation uh, through orgasm or just feel the pleasure plus that time, that special time. And part of the grooming process is to convince the victim that they're not a victim, that they're consenting. Well, right. So there's, there's lots of things to that. One is that unless there's anal penetration or some kind of really rough oral sex, most male victims are not physically hurt right. in their abuse. Um, like I said, unless there's penetration or something that was really rough. A lot of times it's the perpetrator doing something to the kid that feels really good. And it leaves them even more confused. You know, right. I, I I spend a whole chapter on, in my book talking about body betrayal. You know, mm -hmm. these boys, us, me included, feel like our bodies betrayed us um, because it responded. I mean, the first time I had an orgasm was at the hands of this kid. I was a pretty naive kid sexually. I did not know what was going to happen. I did not know about orgasm. I did not know that the male body did that. I was clueless. Rather than it being pleasurable it freaked me out and scared me half to death because i didn't understand what was going on so you feel like your body betrays you in those moments because your body responds in positive ways to the to being touched and it responds sexually and you do have an erection and you do have orgasm and so those things happen leaving you very very confused about why did my body react to this so it, it can't be abused because i wasn't harmed it can't be abuse because my body responded, you know, so we tend to just kind of lie to ourselves. And there was a third point there that you had brought up, Mike, and I can't remember. Men have physiological responses to the abuse. Yeah. In the book, I talk about that being a reflex arc. When somebody stimulates the penis, whether you want them to or not, it's going to respond to touch. That's the way God designed you. Right. You know, there's not, you're not flawed because your body responded. That really showed that you have a, a, a healthy working penis because when somebody touched it, it became aroused. And that's what it's supposed to do. It doesn't know the difference between types of touch. It just recognizes touch. It's kind of stupid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So like it just realizes I'm being touched in a response. It doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't know the difference between love and affection and intimacy and abuse. Right. It's just response to touch. It's a stimulus response. Yep. There's a comment in the chat. It took me 57 years to disclose. Also, not disclosing for me was to avoid the other males in my life labeling me as gay. And you mentioned that earlier. And mm -hmm. I believe my exposure to male sexual abuse did mean that now I was gay. I must be gay because yeah. I physiological <laughs> res responded and... And that, that happens so much, they, yeah. they either feel like, well, I'm gay now because that happened to me. The guy used me like a female, so he feminized me. Right. He must have saw something gay in me to think that he could do that to me. Right. You know, I don't feel like a boy anymore. I don't feel like a man anymore. 
it felt good, just like Roger saying, now I liked it, I must be gay. Right. Well, of course you liked it. Like, that's the male body. And that's mm -hmm. the confusing part is because our body does respond to the touch. Right. But you have to think our bodies at 12, 13 years old can respond, and even younger, can right. respond to touch. But that doesn't mean your mind, that you're cognitively ready for this kind of interaction. You don't know how to interpret it. You don't know how to resolve it. You don't know what's safe. Oh, here was my third point. I just remembered it. There it is. Is that when, and and I was so happy, Joseph Nicolosi Jr. brought this up when his, his talk with Drew, which if mm -hmm. you haven't seen that podcast, I would highly recommend it. I think it's yes. wonderful. When the abuse is done by somebody who you love, it is so confusing because you love this person, you trust this person, this person is special to you, you're special to them, and then they sexualize your touch. Now, your body's going to respond when somebody you love is touching you. Right. And you may not even recognize it as abuse because they have couched it in, there's some specialness to what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, more comments in the chat. I liked it. I must be gay. Uh, another one says, uh, homosexual once told me, once you've tasted the forbidden fruit, you can never go back to straight. And another, yeah, uh, about familial abuse, which was my story as well. Yeah. I love my dad. It was very confusing. I must be gay. And sec sexual abuse says nothing about your sexual orientation. Your body responding to another male says nothing about your sexual orientation. You know, I tell, this is really blunt, but I tell men in therapy all the time, if, if I blindfolded you right now and tied your hands behind your back and had somebody come in and perform oral sex on you, you would have no idea if it was a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. And your penis has no way of knowing if the person that is touching you is male or female. It's just a reflex. It right. gets touched, it responds. So that has nothing to do with, with sexual orientation. It's nothing to do with your true desire. It is all just the process of arousal. Right. Now, um, you shared a little bit about your story of a disclosure, uh, how I responded. Let's see. Uh, for my own abuse, I had repressed all the memories until I was 30. And like you said before, that was around the time my daughter was the age that I was first abused. And that's when all the memories started coming forth. It was feelings. And then I got help. And then, yeah, it was it was abuse memories. Uh, the trafficking abuse, that was repressed until 2019, just a few years ago. Uh, the fact that I was sexually trafficked by my father to other men. And in both cases, I told someone right away. But by then... Yeah, it was, um, yeah, decades from the time of the abuse, several decades. And it's interesting, actually, in the research, and this happens more for women than men, but there's something about the ages, like between 35 and 39, that the research shows that lots of intrusive, repressed, unrecognized memories, especially for women, tend to suddenly start popping in and becoming right. intrusive thoughts. Right. Interesting, the psychology behind that. 
I'm sure there's studies and so forth, but what must be going into our minds that that stuff gets unlocked. But I know when you have children, just that tactile, olfactory, all of that stuff would trigger memories for sure. Well, just just to, to make a point, this wasn't about sexual abuse, but one time I had a man come to therapy and he started having panic attacks and couldn't explain why. Mm-hmm. And when I dug into his story, his dad had died in a bulldozer accident when he was nine years old. Well, his son was now nine and he was panicked because he didn't know, he didn't have a model of a dad after nine years old. And he was afraid he wasn't going to be able to parent his kid past nine years old. Mm. But he wasn't fully aware of that until we started uncovering his own trauma and then recognizing his son as nine years old and what he was worried about with his son. So it may be unconscious, but I definitely think there's something to the idea of when your kids reach the age that you were abused, mentally, consciously or unconsciously, things start to move and shift. Right. Um, Let me read this other disclosure. This was uh, left on the website. This is from Austin Mock. I believe I'm saying that right. Sexually abused twice by my brother, three years older than me, around age seven to eight, and by a male schoolmate at age 13. He was a year younger than me. By a male member of my church who was in his 40s when I was 28, and possibly by my mother around ages three to four years. It took me 15 years to disclose the abuse from my brother, and I struggle with opening up about the other three because of shame. So okay. shame is definitely a huge factor. You shame mentioned that before. definitely one of the things in the list of 40 that I had. Shame is huge. You know, shame, and it's not just shame, it's actually becomes toxic shame. Right. You know, because shame is, I've done something bad that becomes, I am someone bad, and then turns into toxic shame, which I'm so bad that I'm completely unlovable. And that if people knew the real me, they would just completely reject me. Right. Somebody wrote here, shame is paralyzing. Shame is very paralyzing. Mm -hmm. Toxic shame is very paralyzing because you just have nothing good that you feel about yourself or say about yourself inside your own mind. You have become worthless, unlovable, a terrible person, not worthy. Right. So shame is, shame is huge. Right. Um, I like with this other comment in chat. What I did find was that although my attraction was not to men romantically or visually, I became ambiguously attracted to sex in any form. And I believe uh, you mentioned in your book that the, the uh, survivors tend to either become very ultrasexual, hypersexual, or the opposite, asexual or non-sexual. And I think that was my experience was, was avoiding sex, being afraid of sex, whereas others feel like they need to prove themselves or they become very addicted to sex. Right, right. Well, anytime that sex or sex issues happen in what's called the latency period, which is between six and 12, like your mind's not ready to process that information but it has the potential of awakening awakening sexual desire and sexual arousal inside of you 
and it turns, it's like a switch. It goes in and flips the sex switch on. Mm-hmm. You become con- intrigued. You become curious. You want to find out more. Um, you start searching for it. You start sexualizing things and people and situations and seek out information and seek out pornography and then try to initiate those acts with other kids. I mean, it just like flips on a switch for some people. You know, I, I had a guy tell me one time, the first time I tried cocaine, I was I was hooked. Yeah. And, and I think that happens a lot in sexual abuse too sometimes when it, it can flip on that that switch of curiosity way before you're ready to do that. And you just start searching it out anywhere and everywhere you can. Right. Yeah. Um, I know we have another video of someone responding to that on video. Let me set that up just one moment. And I share the screen. And I really appreciate there. all the comments people are making. Oh, yes. Excellent. Hi, this is Daniel Eichelberger. I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I didn't disclose the abuse that happened to me until I was in my late 30s. I had gone through a period of clinical depression and in the process of coming up out of that depression, I finally understood that what happened to me was actual abuse. When you're groomed by others to think that sexual activity is a way of bonding with them and a way of uh, being close to them, you don't understand what's happening to you. You feel like you're complicit. You feel like you wanted what they were wanting you to do with them. You come to expect it. You even come to initiate it sometimes because you were taught or groomed to think about it in a certain way and in the incorrect way, obviously, because abusers are adept at grooming. So I didn't understand what happened to me. I was very ashamed of my past. I was very ashamed of what happened to me or what that said about me. I didn't want to be gay. I was afraid that it said that I was gay. And so, of course, I didn't disclose, not even to my wife when we married, um, because I didn't understand it. So in my late 30s, um, I finally was able to start understanding what happened to me was actually an abuse. And then I was able to gradually have the courage. I first disclosed it to some of my closest friends. And after I worked through it for a little bit, then I had the courage to actually tell my wife. And uh, from there, I started blogging, first under a pseudonym, and then under my own name as I got more courage. Many times, abuse survivors don't talk, they don't tell, they don't report to authorities, because the people that abuse them are their friends or family, people they've come to love and they do not understand the magnitude of sexual encounters or what that says about them. So what do you think about that, what Daniel said? I think everything he said was, was, was very accurate. It was right on. Right. Yeah, and I, I would say that there's probably many men here listening who have had similar thoughts or experiences or you know, I, I quote Tyler Perry in my book that he made a statement about his perpetrator, something to the effect of, I didn't know what to do with what this man had given me to carry. Mm, yeah. Uh, someone in chat is totally re- resonate with what Daniel said. Yes. For yeah. sure. 
But yes, you carry that, even when it's repressed by many of us. Uh, I, yeah, I say the memories are locked in a vault, but it's a leaky vault. So all, all kinds vault. of stuff comes out and still informs. Well, and I use the word lens a lot. Even if something is unconscious, it still is a lens that you are seeing the world through. You yeah. may not be aware. Like sometimes I'm not aware that my glass these these turn into sunglasses outside. You know, but the transition is so small that sometimes I don't even realize it's it's transitioned. Mm -hmm. And I think our abuse is somewhat the same way. It begins to cloud our vision, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and we begin to see the world in a very different light and see ourselves in a very different light. You know, right. when you look in the mirror at that person who's been abused, you see them through that lens in your mind's eye. Right of your own abuse. Right. And so many of the feelings of worthlessness, feeling, yeah, that we have no value. That's extremely common because that mostly subconsciously, that's what we were told because that's how we were used as just this dirty rag to be used and then thrown away. And so much of that gets internalized for sure. Yeah. Well, and I like what Roger is saying here, a child or even a teenager cannot process what has happened because they have no mature life experiences in which to view it. It throws you off the rails of healthy maturity regarding sex. Yeah, because how can you understand and have a grasp of what healthy, mature sex is when you've been sexually abused and it's been introduced at a, to you at a very young age? There's nothing healthy about that. You know, you're, it's like you're being pulled from adolescence into childhood. Right. It's not just a violation of your body. It's a raping of your mind. Right. For sure. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This is a question from the husband material community at large. What is something you would like to ask survivors that you want to know? Uh, because this is Survivor Awareness Month, the main goal being to help non-survivors understand what it's like to be a survivor. And I've got a few that were posted in the community. If This is from CW, and I'm going to uh, let Doug and I answer while those in chat can answer as well uh, via text, and we'll read those responses. This is a big one. How has the abuse affected your everyday life? Again, how has the abuse affected your everyday life let's see for me yeah it has affected especially like we said i had that leaky vault i had those repressed memories and it affected who i was i was afraid of men i was afraid of friendship i was afraid of sex i felt worthless um i had a hard time making friends i was afraid of men didn't know why it had such a profound impact on me. And then when I uncovered the abuse, then it started making sense. Then I uncovered the trafficking. Then even more made sense of why I respond the way I do. So many things like hypervigilance, um, all the, the things that go with PTSD that I experienced. Yeah, it informed how I am, who I am as a person. And as I get healed, the whole of my identity has changed and been uncovered. So now I'm this life coach who is 
sharing this message to other people and helping other men heal. And it's just been this amazing journey of who healed Mike looks like versus wounded Mike. So how has that journey been for you, Doug? And then we'll go to the comments on chat. Well, I, I feel like in some ways it kind of made me further hate men. I didn't trust men. I didn't like men. I didn't really want to have male friendships um, because I felt so taken advantage of by the male friendship that I had. I also then often sexualized men and turned them into sex objects in my head. I kind of thought that's all they wanted or that I would have to do something or be something sexual or entertain them somehow sexually, even if it was just with uh, constant dirty jokes or, you know, crude comments. And that I just kind of avoided them because I didn't think I could ever truly have a real friendship with men. And it wasn't until I started my own healing journey several years ago that I have opened myself up and allowed myself to have true male friendships because I just kind of grew to hate men, actually. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Lewis responds, it created pockets of fear, shame, and self-loathing. Uh, go ahead and read out loud what Robert Oh, do you want me to read it? Yes. Please. I'm sorry. People became objects sexually. It was hard to connect on a healthy level. I ruined relationships thinking I needed to sexualize them to cement the relationship. Mm. I think I think I thought that in my head. So that I just avoided male friend friendships. Mm. Right. Right. That makes sense. Uh, and then Dan responds, I've always felt wrong and also insatiably curious about sex and look for it under every rock. Yep. Um, reminds me of uh, the book Bent on Men, which doesn't really cover abuse, but it, it talks about same-sex attraction and yep. that so many of us experience. And it was a great firsthand story about what that is like. Well, and yeah, Lewis's comment here, I totally resonate with that. It also never made me feel like a normal boy or man. I mean, I, I totally felt that way because, like I said, my first orgasm was at the hands of another boy. Right. Like, how do you how do you sit around and tell that when boys are telling jerk off stories? Right. With one another, you know, and laughing like that wasn't funny to me. And I knew people wouldn't think it was funny if I brought it up. So right. I felt a ton of shame. I never felt normal. I was teased for being feminine and, and too much like a girl. And then when that happened to me, I, I felt even more distant from my masculinity and that, that I wasn't truly a boy because now, now this had happened to me also on top of people already thinking those kinds of homosexual thoughts about me. Right. Uh, let me go to another poem. This is from Chris. Uh, and let me get that going. Hi, Husband Material Men. My name is Chris, and I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I wanted to share with you today a poem that I wrote back in 2022, back in a period of time where I was really digging deep into my recovery and dealing with the issues that my sexual abuse as a child had caused. So I wrote a poem about my disclosure, and I wanted to share it with you today, and then also talk a little bit about some of the images and where they come from and what they've meant as I've wrestled with what disclosure means. The poem is called After Silence. 
Silence. No need to seek out shame. Shame arrives uninvited, unbidden, muffling my voice like a winter sodden blanket. Darkness falls as twilight rises, a crepuscule of memory fogging mute. A boy, how small and frail he looks to me, stands frozen, mouth open wide, but with no words. He must maintain the silence. He must guard the silence at all costs for a whisper may cost him everything. Bury the wordless in the dirt like a poison seed, deep, deeper. Pretend it doesn't grow with snaking roots and lurid shoots, pushing up, up above the surface. Invading, piercing, reaching, only to speak one strangled word. What noise will break the heart after silence? So that's a poem about my disclosure. And I didn't disclose until I was in my mid twenties to my then fiance, um, now my wife. And what I lived with for most of my life was this code of silence that basically said, you can never speak a word of this. It needs to be buried very, very deep because shame was always there. And shame said, you can't let this out. The problem was, is that when those things got buried deep inside, they began to grow and the things that began to grow weren't good. So a couple of years ago, I had a weird dream and actually the dream informed some of the language of this poem. I dreamed I was in a house and I was young and I was in the kitchen. It wasn't a kitchen I recognized, but I knew it was in the house where my abuse had happened. And I began to notice a strange smell and it was coming from under the sink. And so I opened the cabinets under the sink and I saw that underneath there was just like black rot, but it was more than just black rot. It was like some horrible, evil plant that was sending out shoots everywhere. And I knew that it was causing not only the stench, but the evil presence that I felt. And I knew that it had to be cleaned up, but I didn't know how. So in my dream, my mom actually came into the kitchen and she looked at the, uh, the thing that was growing, the evil plant, the evil seed. And she said, oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. And then I woke up. I later found out that my mom too had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. So she did indeed know what that was. And her silence has lasted decades. So disclosure, it's never easy. Um, but what I've realized is that when you open up that kitchen cabinet and you begin to clean out some of those lurid shoots, the poison seed, that the fresh air comes in, that when you do disclose to people who care about you, that things can get cleaned up and healing can happen. So that's my, that's my poem. It's about disclosure, it's about silence, and it's about breaking silence and what can happen. Thank you. And we're back. That last line of his poem just grabbed me. What, what's, 
what's the thing that's going to break the heart that breaks the silence? Yeah. Wow. How powerful. Right. And it's so difficult to disclose when you know. Yeah. Very difficult. Please join us next time as we continue with part two of HM's Male Survivor Awareness Day 2023. I'll see you then. If you would like to learn more about my coaching with Polar Live Consulting, where I provide one-on-one -on -one coaching and group coaching, both with a focus on healing for male survivors, reach out to me at polarliveconsulting.com. That is polar spelled P-O-L-A-R. I would love to hear from you. I want to hear your story. If you would like your story featured on this podcast, contact me via my website. If you like this podcast, please rate and review because that's how other people can find me. And I really want to spread this message of healing and hope to others. And remember, you are not alone. Healing is possible and the abuse was not your fault. Let me repeat that. The abuse was not your fault. See you next time on the Healing for Male Survivors podcast.